This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie, brought to you by Killer Podcasts, an evergreen podcasts network. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. It's the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre and tries to find an answer. Hello, Caroline. Hi. And how are we this week? Mm, Back to reality, I guess. Oh, there goes gravity. Little little Eminem reference for the kids. <laughs> oh yes, the thirty-year-olds like us. Uh, that is yes, that is correct. <laughs> uh, Caroline, what are we talking about this week? Uh, I have a guess. What's your guess? Well, we've been talking about Charles Manson for the last two weeks, and he still hasn't. Uh, well, has still hasn't ordered anyone to kill anyone yet. So is uh, that a, is that a critique? Well, no, I'm just guessing <laughs> that uh, we have more to go with the Charles Manson story based on what I know. About the Charles Manson story. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, uh, part three this week? Part three. So, let's circle back a little bit. Um, we skipped forward a touch last week to get to the Manson clan's meeting with Dennis Wilson, but there are a few other details surrounding the groups settling in the Los Angeles area. Who, the Beach Boys? <laughs> the, the What would be the Manson family. Um, moving from the San Francisco area to L.A., so we should establish those details first. Don't don't we love a story of found family, Carrie? (laughs) Not this one. So after Charlie's failed audition um, up top in their L.A. journey with Gary Stromberg, and before the family fatefully met Dennis Wilson, a member of the Beach Boys... The group needed a place to crash as they settled down in L.A. And with the hippie, free love, whatever man vibes still strong, they ended up at a house called Spiral Staircase in Topanga Canyon. Groovy name. Mm-hmm. Where all sorts of quirky types found temporary lodging. Here, Charlie would meet one of the only genuine friends he may have had in his life a young man by the name of Bobby Beausoleil. Now, Bobby Beausoleil is a fascinating figure, not only in the context of this story, but in that of the 60s itself. He is a very uniquely hippie-era figure. Bobby was a member of several contemporary rock groups at the time, including one called the Grassroots, not to be confused with that other, more famous Grassroots that would eventually have the office actor Creed Bratton as their vocalist. Um, And he was also a member of a band called Chamber Orchestra. He was also an actor. Not a very original name. Well, it's it's spelled O-R-K. K-U-S-T-R-A. I like it less now. (laughs) Uh, Bobby was an actor, and in 1967, he met 60s icon Kenneth Anger, 
who um, seems to be kind of like if John Waters and Aleister Crowley had a baby. I worship Satan. <laughs> He's um, one of America's first openly gay filmmakers, and a lot of his work combined eroticism, surrealism, and the occult. Well, this sounds like John Waters. Exactly. Um, but I guess he I would, would say occult, yeah. his sub- subversion was more like occulty and like demonic. John Waters is more of like about the, the filth and just like grossness and weirdness. And his was more blasphemous, I guess. I've seen Pink Flamingos carry. It's, <laughs> it's pretty blasphemous. <laughs> it is. Um, but he, uh, B- Bobby Beausoleil met Kenneth Anger. He's you know, starting his sort of auteur career. And he soon became Anger's obsession, muse, and star of his subversive film, Lucifer Rising. And Anger's film works would eventually um, involve such major figures as Mick Jagger and Keith Richards, who worked with him. And Anger was even Godfather, which was an ironic title, uh, to the daughter of Church of Satan founder Anton LaVey, which makes his second appearance in this series, showing that California in the 60s was very much a case of two degrees of separation in just about every direction. So pretty legit Satanist. I mean, those are satanic bona fides. Yeah, I don't know how deeply involved in the actual like day-to-day he was, um, but he seemed to be pretty into pretty into at least the vibe of satanism uh, and by legit satanist i don't mean belie- like wor- actually worshiping satan because right. of course that's not what nathan levey was about right so bobby was in lucifer rising but eventually he fell out of favor with anger because kenneth believed that bobby stole the footage for lucifer rising it was a whole thing and so by the time charlie and his crew came around bobby was mostly just bopping around la kind of another player on the scene sort of a notable face uh what is lucifer rising is it is it just it's it's very 60s it's very much like a tone poem of a movie gotcha i've never actually seen it but it seems like it. it would be a lot but yes they yes that there's a lot of controversy over like the footage and all of that Mm -hmm. but so bobby immediately intrigued charlie when they met not least because of his handsome good looks which had the girls flocking to him anyone who attracted followers was worth studying to charlie manson and also worth considering as a member of the group because hot guys would bring in hot girls and then the crew could keep expanding and expanding yeah, but th- there is a um, type of narcissist who wouldn't want any guys around who were taking the girls for themselves. Right. And I think initially Charlie probably thought that he could at least lord over him as like a in a cult of personality sort of way. But Bobby was not a follower. And he was happy to hang out with the group, but he also had his own stuff going on. He had late night jam sessions with Frank Zappa. He was popping up at weird little indie films, you know? So he he had a life outside of the group that a lot of the members of the group did not have at this point. 
He didn't need Charlie like Charlie may have needed him, but they did form a musical duo called The Milky Way to play a couple of small shows at local clubs. Ah, no recordings of this? No, no, I don't think it really went anywhere. But most importantly, aside from what would happen later, and we'll discuss how Bobby plays into the murder spree eventually, Bobby introduced Charlie to a guy named Gary Hinman, who he was living with at the time in Topanga Canyon. Gary Hinman was a music teacher, more conservative than the true flower children, but happy to hang around them. Gary also cooked up and sold drugs, and Charlie needed drugs. So he wasn't that straight-laced. No, but he had a house. He paid a mortgage, you know? He had a car. And they they were allowed to crash at Gary's house. They were allowed to borrow his car. And the girls liked him, too. Quiet, considerate Gary may have been a relief to some of them. Charlie had taken to brutally beating Mary Brunner, who had since given birth to a baby everyone called Pooh Bear. Well, isn't he, I would assume he's beating all of these girls some of the time, right? Isn't that how pimping works? There is some of that, but with Mary, it was kind of like an example. Like, if you displease me, this is what will happen to you. And because she had just had his child and um, she was his first follower, as we discussed, she was the one that he first glommed onto in the San Francisco area and was his first member of the family you know he probably figured that he can abuse her in any way and she would still stick around because she was still here and so yeah so far he was right Mm -hmm. with susan now pregnant and more girls joining the crew it was a lesson well learned by others in the group to listen to what charlie said or else get a beating thanks to the subservient free loving women more men were joining as well um there was 18-year-old Paul Watkins, Little Paul, who became Charlie's most effective recruiter. Not Little Paul. Yes, and he also vied to become Charlie's second-in-command. Dee Dee Lansbury, the teenage daughter of Murder, She Wrote actress Angela Lansbury, also came and went from the group, but left for good when Angela cut off Dee Dee's credit cards, which were being used by Charlie and co. Well, that's good grandmother move by Angela? Mother. Good mother move by Angela, and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, that's how you get the kid back. Yeah. The group grew to around 20, with other major followers joining, including Sandy Good, Diane Lake, Nancy Pittman, and Ruth Ann Morehouse herself, who finally found her way back to the collective. You'll remember that her father had threatened Charlie with a shotgun, and Charlie had said she should run away and get married to someone to emancipate herself and join up with them later on. Sure, someone like Charlie, or he's saying like after we, hey, after we leave town. Well, she married someone. You got to get hitched. Yeah, she married someone, and um, she did get emancipated that way, and then she ended up finding her way back to the group. Is the husband still around, or she she kicked him to the curb once she got emancipated? Um. I don't think she kicked him to the curb that soon after, but I don't think he's as much of a factor in the group at this point. The group members began to pick alternative names for themselves, and so Susan became Sadie, Ruth Ann became Weesh, Pat became Katie, and so on. A lot of the names make no sense. Why would you just 
go to Katie from Patricia, you know, like, I don't know. We talked a little bit about this last week, and this is before the White Album comes out, right? So Sadie's just a coincidence? Yes. And this is really when Charlie's crew would become the family, and they would be called that by Dennis Wilson's friend, Greg Jacobson. So that's what they'll be referred to uh, as from now on. We will be calling them the family, or so the Manson family. You got the wizard and the family. Mm-hmm. What a band. A routine was established in Topanga Canyon, which was recounted by Charlie's friend Phil Kaufman, who had been released from prison and joined the group for a while. Carrie's pulling out a, a thick tome. So here's a quote. This is from Manson by Jeff Gwynn. Um, I'm going to use some extensive quotes from the book. This episode, uh, it's been really an invaluable resource, so I recommend everyone go read it. Quote, on a typical day for Charlie's group in Topanga, everybody got up late and the women got some breakfast together from whatever was left over from the night before. It might be fruit or raw vegetables or cookies if there were a few boxes of those. Mmm, raw vegetables. Nobody much cared. Breakfast wasn't really a formal communal meal, just the chance for everybody to get something in their stomachs to start the day. Then Charlie and Kaufman and whatever other guys were there worked on cars and motorcycles. Kaufman couldn't believe how people just gave Charlie these things. <laughs> as soon as they were completely roadworthy, he'd trade them off or even just flat out give them away, telling everyone that doing so was a reminder not to become materialistic. Uh, is the implication that Charlie's just stealing these? I don't know. If, I mean, I think people did genuinely just give him stuff. Just like the Morehouses gave him the piano that he traded for the bus. Uh -huh. So while the men worked on the cars and bikes, most of the girls left to pick through grocery store garbage bins. They'd come back with their haul and before fixing and serving dinner, meals were exclusively prepared, served and cleaned up after by the girls because these tasks were defined by Charlie as women's work, the proper role for all women, all of the time being the service and gratification of men. Sometimes everyone would gather for a group dosing of LSD with the drug administered by Charlie. Paul Watkins told authorities later that Charlie always took a lesser dose than he doled out to anyone else, the better to keep his wits about him. When everybody was beginning their trip, Charlie would begin to preach, talking about giving up individuality and possessions, how life and death were the same. Charlie never in any way mentioned committing violent acts to bring about the better world he envisioned. Each time he stuck to what Phil Kaufman called peace and love. Besides a few used for cutting and preparing food, there were no knives around or any guns. Peace and love, the Ringo Starr philosophy. <laughs> Some afternoons, there would be group sex. <laughs> Sometimes what you did and whom you did it with was determined by individual whim or, as Kaufman recalls, whoever you fell on. Other times, Charlie served as director, telling each participant what he or she would do and with whom. And um, there were never any gay acts in any direction. He was not interested in that. You, you, butt stuff. <laughs> well, not even like lesbians. Like he wasn't, even though there were more women uh, by a good amount than men, he never had the girls um, be together. Dinner was taken as a group with large steaming platters of food passed around and everyone eating as much as they liked. Afterward, Charlie would usually play his guitar and sing. The women were his chorus. 
If they didn't sing Charlie's songs, they sang the Beatles' latest tunes, at the time, over and over again. Some of them got sick of every song on the Magical Mystery Tour album, but they sang them anyway. It was as though Charlie considered the Beatles to be adjunct members of his real family. Though he controlled the music played at whatever the group was calling home, Charlie did allow his followers to tune in whatever stations they liked on car radios. Oh, thank you. Sometimes Charlie and select others, members of the group he wanted to reward, would go out at night, dropping in on Topanga acquaintances and occasionally crashing gatherings. So that was a normal day in Topanga Canyon for the family. Uh, so there's more women than men. Mm-hmm. Why? It was easier for him to manipulate them, I think. No, but I mean, what's attracting women to this group? If it's like, hey, our main thing is all, all you're doing is serving us. We're into all of the 60s stuff, except for all of the women's lib things that are happening. Well, we talked a lot about this last episode. Um, Charlie knew when to target someone especially women, because he had been basically taught that, and he didn't respect women, so it was easy for him to do. Um, A lot of the women that he targeted were very lost, needed some direction, and I think in a way it might have started out that they wanted someone to guide them and tell them what to do with their day because they were so lost, and then he used that to his advantage brainwashed them and eventually they just kind of went along with it Mm. plus they were all very hungry drugged up i mean it's classic cult stuff separated from their families and friends Mm -hmm. it becomes normal so this was all the state of affairs when charlie and the family met dennis wilson and we discussed that last episode and we also talked about how the group eventually bled dennis dry overstayed their welcome and charlie himself put the fear of god into dennis so much that the Beach Boy simply moved away to try to escape. And also sang one of Charlie's songs. We'll talk about that a a good amount, too. Dennis Wilson's former landlord eventually tossed the family out of Dennis's lodge on Sunset Boulevard, and so gathering whatever remaining belongings of Dennis's they could pawn off, clothing and knickknacks and, yes, Beach Boy's gold records. That they had just taken off the walls. Yeah. The family set off for what would be their most infamous home in California, Spawn Ranch. Spawn Ranch entered Charlie's radar through follower Sandy Good when, after yet another bus breakdown, the family member suggested a friend of hers fix it, who happened to live on a ranch about 35 miles northwest of downtown L.A., which uh, in this area, it was the near the Simi Valley and the Santa Susana Mountains. Not only did Charlie find a mechanic there, but an exciting opportunity. And Charlie loved an opportunity. Especially especially exciting ones, sure. (laughs) Spawn Ranch was composed of hundreds of acres of rugged foothills scattered with streams, caves, and most interestingly, an old Western movie set. Yeah, and they got a field that just grows acid. (laughs) Come on. This movie set would have been instantly recognizable to anyone who had grown up watching the popular TV westerns of the 50s, many of which were filmed at the convenient location. The ranch included many storefronts with, you know, empty interiors, but also some complete buildings, including a saloon. Other small structures were scattered across the property, which was now owned by George Spahn, 
nearly blind and in his 80s. The set was run down now, wasn't really used for filming much. Westerns weren't really in fashion anymore anyway, but the ranch got by through charging tourists a few bucks to ride a horse through the foothills or see the set where, you know, one of their favorite TV shows was filmed. Can I say, what a cool place to set up a hippie commune if you weren't eventually going to commit a murder of some kind. Right, exactly. I mean, it is, it's like a movie. It's awesome. Literally. Uh, you get to go, you, you know, you keep all your all your, your booze and your drugs in the little saloon there, and you go have parties in the saloon. It's a pretty cool hangout. I mean, it was certainly super rundown, and they had to do a lot of work. But um, when Charlie arrived, he knew, much like a, unfortunately, rundown woman, he knew how to take advantage of this situation. His pitch to George Spawn was thus... Charlie and a few friends would live out on the ranch, and instead of paying rent, which they couldn't, they would work to clean up the shabby movie set and help out the currently employed ranch hands. The girls could keep house for George, and hey, maybe they could also help make him comfortable in other ways. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Yeah, we'll just add some dominoes to your jive. Is that cool, (laughs) tic-tac? To George, it all sounded pretty good, if not understandable from what you're saying. What's Charlie? And Charlie arrived back with a small group, including Lynette Fromm, who he installed as George's official housekeeper. She was also ordered by Charlie to have sex with George whenever the elderly man wanted, and this was apparently fine by her. George liked physical contact with Lynn and loved giving, giving her little pinches, which made her squeal. This prompted George to nickname her Squeaky, and yes, a horny old man is the reason why Lynette Fromm is now better known as Squeaky Fromm to history. <laughs> I like the way she squeak. Yeah, pretty much. George expected maybe half a dozen family members to be moving to the ranch, but of course, when giving Charlie an inch, he would always take a mile. What about when you're giving Charlie a pinch? We know George likes that. <laughs> Get a squeak. Within a few months, the squatters numbered around 35. To offset this, Charlie began working on a new family member named Charles Tex Watson to build out some of the storefronts into actual buildings for members to live in. Watson, a Texas native, had picked... Because most of the 35 people are just sex girls? Well, a lot of them are just in, like, lean-tos and tents, so they, they don't have a lot of places to actually be inside. Oh, I thought you were saying he's bringing Tex in because there's no one to do the work. Well, that's also part of it. Um, Tex had picked up Dennis Wilson hitchhiking one day. He picked up Dennis hitchhiking because even rock stars hitchhiked in 1960s <laughs> LA. Dennis, just just call one of your many servants and, and hangers on to bring one of your several cars. Right. And Tex met Charlie and the family back at Dennis's place that eventful summer. As Charlie was always on the lookout for male family members, especially those with useful skills, he immediately began to persuade the mechanics whiz to join the crew. And he bestowed the obvious nickname Tex upon him because he was from Texas. Wait, what are you, George W. Bush? Hey, you're always eating pretzels. I'm going to call you pretzels. <laughs> I mean, is that your George W. Bush voice or your Charlie Manson voice? It sounds the same. <laughs> At the ranch, Charlie was asking a lot of techs to labor on these buildings unpaid, 
So what he did was dangle full membership to the family just out of reach to help persuade him to do the work. Tex was allowed to be at the ranch, but Charlie said that he still had not surrendered his ego sufficiently to become a permanent part of the group. But if he worked real hard and never complained, Charlie would reconsider. <laughs> you just have to never complain, mm-hmm. do whatever work I tell you, and and get this head full of acid, buddy, because mm-hmm. Charlie makes no sense. Yeah, so Tex, therefore, spent most of his waking hours addled on drugs, and willingly working his ass off to create structures the family could live in on the ranch. Soon, his desperation to please Charlie at any cost would have very dark consequences. So what's going on with Tex that he's ready ready to fall for this? I don't know. I think he had a very lost and empty family life and, and previous life. And he, he had come out to California to try and reinvent himself. And it wasn't happening the way he was hoping. And well, Charlie this, this was giving it. him some structure. Yeah. Charlie loved the isolation of the ranch, which allowed not only for the family to basically do as they please, but for Charlie to do as he pleased with them with little outside input. It is always the top priority for any cult leader to separate their followers from the outside world and familiar faces like friends and family to draw them deeper and deeper into the brainwashing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if there's no one else in your life telling you this is weird, you don't know this is weird after a while. It's why the Mormons are in the desert and why Scientologists put people on a boat. You said it, not me. It's easier to take over someone's mind when there is nothing else to occupy it. However, there were a couple residents of the ranch that did object to the family's presence. Not George Spahn, who was living the high life with Squeaky and so blind that he barely saw what anyone else was doing. (laughs) I still like the way the little one squeaks. (laughs) But ranch hands Juan Flynn and Shorty Shea. Flynn was a Vietnam veteran who headed the ranch hands, and Shay, a once-aspiring actor, began to loudly bristle against the family's presence and earned Charlie's ire by advising Spawn to sell the ranch to, to developers because he just hated the family and thought this was the best way to just get rid of them. Um, it, it was. Well, could have would have been. Both men would be deeply and permanently affected by their fateful encounter with the family, and one of them would not survive it. Steve Grogan would also be affected by Charlie in a different way, becoming the only ranch hand to fully embrace the family life, kind of transitioning from Spawn Ranch number one to the family number one, and he really offered Charlie unwavering loyalty. He was not smart. He was seen as being very stupid. Um, but Charlie didn't care. He he just wanted loyalty. So you're saying, you're saying these girls will do sex all the time? <laughs> John C. Riley is Steve Grogan. <laughs> In return for his loyalty, he got the nickname Clem and was allowed entry to the family. Uh, uh, and 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 you said you got more acid, right? <laughs> Others that joined that summer and fall were Kathy Gillies, a.k.a. Capistrano, Tom Walliman, a.k.a. TJ, and John Philip Hot, a.k.a. Zero. Tell me Capistrano wasn't a swallows joke. I have no idea what that is. 
two more new arrivals, Catherine Scher, a.k.a. Gypsy, and Leslie Van Houten, a.k.a. Lulu, were the now ex-girlfriends of Bobby Beausoleil, who had tired of him and came to join the family they had previously encountered. Leslie, in particular, was smarter than Charlie liked his girls to be, because smart girls ask questions, but she was attractive, and that was more important to the overall group's efforts. He would order Leslie to follow himself around and use her knowledge of shorthand to record the song lyrics he would compose off the cuff. She was his personal music secretary, if you will. Ooh, get this down, get this down. Twinkle, twinkle, war. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, he is a big tool. Uh, Gypsy, for her part, transitioned into becoming the de facto leader of the girls, cracking the whip when needed, and ensuring that all of Charlie's instructions were followed to the letter. So at Spawn Ranch, a new routine was established. Out comes the thick tome. Mm-hmm. Again, we're quoting from Manson. Charlie tried to lull his flock with preaching, drugs, and sex, punctuated by enough hard physical labor to keep everybody moderately worn out. And this is very similar. This is me saying an aside, but it's a very similar situation to Jonestown by the end. Oh, yeah. They were doing so much labor, and they weren't eating enough, and they were all addled by all different kinds of things that they weren't thinking clearly when what happened happened. Quote, the day started early. Everyone was up around 7 a.m. to feed the horses and take them out to pasture and to graze. Then, after a hurried breakfast, usually whatever food was left over from dinner the night before, the horses were retrieved and saddles were fetched so that rides would be available to whatever visitors might show up. A few family members stayed available to serve as trail guides while the rest cleaned out stalls and hauled in fresh hay. Boy, imagine the tours those families were getting. Yeah. Once that was done, Juan Flynn might have other repair work to assign, and on mornings when there didn't seem to be anything else to do, Charlie would set everyone to virtual busy work. Mornings were for work. There was no lunch break. The two daily meals were breakfast and dinner. Later in the day, there were frequently LSD sessions orchestrated by Charlie. Doses of acid were passed around. Charlie would personally place the drugs in his followers' mouths, but sometimes he did not take any himself, so he would remain in control of his faculties. Then, as as everyone was tripping, Charlie would talk often about himself as Jesus. A (laughs) A few times, he simulated being crucified. Charlie emphasized that LSD was holy. Using it made you learn about yourself, who you really were. Late afternoon usually found the women going out on food runs, sometimes returning with all kinds of bounty, and others only a few handfuls of limp, scraggly produce. Whatever they got comprised the dinner menu. Attendance at this meal was mandatory. The women did the cooking, and then everyone sat around as platters of food were passed. The men ate first, and the women got what was left. Sometimes in the afternoons, sometimes after dinner, everyone gathered around while Charlie preached. Most often, he had his guitar and would play and sing his sermons. The girls would stand up and dance as they listened. Other times, Charlie chose a biblical approach. Jesus often taught parables, and Charlie did too. After the meal and the preaching, there was music. Often, Charlie sang his own songs, and everyone else joined in on the choruses. Otherwise, it was the Beatles, the Magical Mystery Tour album over and over, 
or else albums by the Moody Blues. The only other music Charlie allowed at these times was a top 10 hit, Born to be Wild by the American band Steppenwolf. Charlie liked the music of The Doors and Jefferson Airplane, but didn't consider them appropriate for this special part of the day. And God help you if you play Magic Carpet Ride. It's only (laughs) Born to be Wild. Usually, sex involved random pairing off during the afternoons or after dinner and Charlie's preaching at night. Anyone in the family was supposed to be willing to sleep with any other member. Permanent pairing off as couples was prohibited, though Charlie sometimes assigned two people to stay together so that one could keep a close eye on the other. This is very common cult behavior. The, like, leader choosing Mm -hmm. the couplings and and or... Or forbidding couplings Mm -hmm. that are self-chosen, yeah. After he finally admitted Tex Watson to full membership in the family, Charlie gave him Mary Brunner as a regular sex partner. Group sex was completely orchestrated by Charlie. He would specify who would do what and with whom. Sometimes the sessions were drawn out and complex. Charlie promised that the acts were sacramental and an ongoing way to break down all of the false inhibitions forced on the family members by repressive society. And also, if people form relationships that are with each other and not with Charlie, uh, then there's someone who's more important than Charlie. Yeah, of course. As a special treat, Charlie would encourage the family to act out group fantasies. They would run around the movie set pretending to be cowboys or else sail imaginary ships among the hills as swashbuckling pirates. I'm on board with this part. Several of the girls liked dressing up as fairies. They'd imagine that they'd grown wings on their backs and could fly. Yeah, this is just LARPing, um, made sinister, I guess, (laughs) by context. Charlie encouraged elf themes. Sometimes during LSD trips, he'd suggest that maybe a time would come when the girls really would become elves, wings and all. And wouldn't, first of all, I don't know that elves have wings, but wouldn't uh, Jonestown have been, uh, you know, a little bit better if Jim Jones was encouraging elf themes? I th- well, they both ended badly, so I don't think so. Charlie maintained control other ways. Whenever anyone in the family passed Charlie on the ranch, particularly on the wooden sidewalks of the movie set, Charlie would stand in front of them and make faces and jerk his hands around. The family member was required to mimic all of Charlie's expressions and gestures. And this is going to, I'm, I'm saying this now because this is going to play into the trial later in a weird way. Flawless imitation meant that the person was well on the way to spiritual enlightenment. Failing to match a Charlie grimace or movement indicated the presence of too much ego and the follower was firmly chastised. Mm. One of Charlie's most inflexible rules was that children should not be raised, a.k.a. ruined, by their biological parents, even among the family. Pooh Bear, Charlie's son with Mary Brunner, was considered the child of every full-fledged family member. When Susan Atkins gave birth to a son in October, that baby was taken from her and kept separate with Pooh Bear. Susan named her child ZZOZC Zadfrak because it seemed like a good name. You know, maybe it should be taken away. <laughs> Wristwatches, calendars, and clocks were forbidden. Charlie said he wanted everyone to concentrate on the now rather than worry about what some soulless gadget said was the correct time. Eyeglasses weren't allowed either. Huh. Charlie explained that whatever the state of their vision, that was their natural way to see the rest of the world, and only natural things were good. Except LSD. 
books weren't allowed on the ranch either. There was one exception. Charlie had a Bible. So, after the break, we'll spend some more time at Spawn Ranch and join the Manson family at their listening party for the Beatles' White Album, which would inspire Charlie to catalyze his philosophy into two infamous words, helter-skelter. Do you think he's actually reading from the Bible, or is he just waving it around and occasionally chucking it at someone's head? Uh, he does at, at points, especially Revelation. Look out! Do you enjoy science, spooky stories, and all things paranormal? We do, too. While we would love for most paranormal stories to be true, we are here to tell you that they probably aren't. But that doesn't make them any less fun to speculate about. We are the Spooky Science Sisters podcast. In this podcast, we bring you bi-weekly discussions on possible scientific explanations behind the supernatural. Backed up by research articles and other credible sources, we do deep dives into things like archaeology and physics and share in-depth discussions with topic experts. Visit us at SpookySciencesters.com to listen to a couple of skeptics debunk some of your favorite alien encounters, cryptid sightings, and ghost stories with science, sass, and a significant amount of laughter. Thank you, and stay spooky. Welcome back. When last we left, uh, Carrie had established for us the picture of life in... Are we in 1968 or 9? Uh, right now we're in 68. 1968, Spawn Ranch. We've got about 35... Somewhat sinister hippies um, <laughs> living in a occult. Uh, well, you all heard the first half of the podcast. <laughs> they, they, they're, they, Charlie has established a cult here on on Spawn Ranch. There's no two ways about it at this point. Mm-hmm. And it was around the time that the family settled into Spawn Ranch that a surprising guest also showed up to visit, Dennis Wilson. Um, Dennis isn't totally done with these people at this point. Not at this point. Though afraid of Charlie in his own way, he still liked many of the girls and enjoyed a romp or two in the hay with them. He didn't mind forking over some of his extra cash to Charlie for the privilege. And it was around this time that he told Charlie the Beach Boys would be recording Cease to Exist. And Charlie's certainty that he was finally on the precipice of superstardom was underscored when producer Terry Melcher began to show up at the ranch as well, usually with Dennis or his friend Greg Jacobson. Mm-hmm. Now, Terry was involved in the earlier decision not to put Charlie in the band, or, or is, is that stuff we talked about last week, this is that unfolding? Somewhat. He wasn't involved in the Beach Boys day-to-day, but he was a music producer. So to reiterate, um, we kind of, you know, glossed over this last week, but Terry Melcher was a successful music producer at the time. He had already produced the hit albums Mr. Tambourine Man and Turn, Turn, Turn for the Birds at the young age of 23. And he had even performed on the Beach Boys' album Pet Sounds, playing tambourine on That's Not Me and God Only Knows. Melcher's mother was Doris Day, an actress and singer who we may forget now was actually a huge star at her peak in the 50s and 60s. Well, que sera, sera. 
That was her one of her signature sh- songs, yes. At the time that Terry met Charlie, Terry was at the top of his game in the music industry. He was dating young actress Candace Bergen, who some of us will know from the 80s, 90s era sitcom Murphy Brown. And he was renting a home with her at 10,050 Cielo Drive, a luxury home in Benedict Canyon, Los Angeles. And this will become very important in the future. This is one of those addresses that has its own Wikipedia page. (laughs) Terry was seemingly not monogamous uh, in his relationship with Candace Bergen. Is anyone in this story monogamous? No. I don't know if Candace was aware or uh, hip to the groove of it. Uh, He enjoyed hooking up with family member Ruth Ann Morehouse. She Uh, was his favorite. Charlie's family, not his own family. Yes. (laughs) And so Terry would hook up with Ruth Ann whenever he would visit Spawn Ranch. But those visits uh, would soon come to an end. Um, Terry would begin to lay low. He was leaning into his career And uh, his stepfather died, um, leaving his mother with a ton of debts that she hadn't known about. So he was trying to resurrect uh, what was at the time his mother's waning stardom to try and get her some money that this guy had basically frittered all away without her knowing. So he was, it's not that he was freaked out by Charlie per se. He was just busy with other crap. He was. He he didn't like Charlie showing up at his, his house. He didn't like... He liked what Charlie offered, but he didn't like Charlie, I think is kind of the vibe. Um, He secretly moved from Cielo Drive to Malibu, telling only a select few close friends about the shift. And so Charlie became frustrated that he stopped seeing Terry at parties because he saw Terry as the person who held his final shot at stardom. And he really wanted to get on his good side, but obviously... He was just annoying the guy. That and old... he's a, he's he's creepy. I mean, Dennis Wilson was already creeped out by him, but there was something about what he offered in some way that kept them coming back. Yeah, it was the free drugs and sex girls. Yeah, but they could have gotten that anywhere is the thing. They were both rich, famous guys. So there had there had to be something else drawing them in and it must be some sort of X factor because I, I can't explain it. Well, you, you just said, at least for Terry, he didn't like Charlie. Right. But so, I don't know. He Again, he could have gotten girls and drugs plenty of other places. I'm so I don't s- know why he's driving out to the ranch is I'm, my thing. I'm going to say it again. This is all very Rasputin. Yeah. With Terry's say-so, Charlie could get a contract at one of the biggest music companies in the business. He just needed to give Charlie a chance. But despite his constant efforts to get in touch, Terry had no time for Charlie or anything else aside from work at this point, leading to the end of his relationship with Candace Bergen, as well as to mounting frustrations on Charlie's part. It was around this time that the Beatles released their self-titled double album, which many now refer to as the White Album because of the stark white cover. Noted for some of the best and worst songs of all time. Uh, And with this, Charlie's essential philosophy began to crystallize. He was captivated by the music and had his followers listen to the album over and over and over again. He pointed out a special selection of songs, Piggies, Blackbird, Revolution 1, Revolution 9, and Helter Skelter. Within the songs, Charlie said, the Beatles were predicting a war 
that was soon to come. Quote, Though each song on the record had prophetic significance, Charlie explained these songs were the musical roadmaps, roadmaps to the immediate future. Piggies described the disgusting sense of entitlement enjoyed by the very rich and powerful and concluded that they needed a damn good whacking. Yes. I mean, that's just text. That's not even <laughs> subtext to that song. Blackbird predicted an uprising of downtrodden black people. Okay, now you've lost me. Yeah. This was the moment for them to arise. Revolution 1 was a call to arms. Revolution 9, a pastiche of electronic effects and sound bites, including the clatter of machine guns and human screams, was the soundtrack of the coming fury. And the song Helter Skelter provided a formal name for the chaos soon to come. In the best Dale Carnegie tradition, Charlie made certain that his followers felt these interpretations were theirs as well as his. Everyone should feel incredibly pr proud, Charlie declared. Not only was the White Album the Beatles' collective call to arms to the entire world, it was specifically directed toward Charlie and the family. Sometime in 1969, the family would move to Barker Ranch in Death Valley, and the Beatles would join them there. He preached to the family that a black uprising was imminent not only because the Beatles said so, but also the Bible. So Charlie made several connections between the Bible and his theory. Mm. Uh, God, including Revelation's <laughs> prediction of a swarm of locusts because locusts are beetles. Get it? Oh. And are are they even? I don't I don't know. I don't think so. I don't think that they are. I, you listeners <laughs> will correct me if I'm if I'm if I'm wrong, but I don't think that locusts are beetles. <laughs> And that revelation also predicted four angels arriving to Earth. Those were, of course, the Beatles. And that the fifth uh, would be given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. And so that fifth angel, given the key, would be Charlie. The fifth Beatle, Billy Preston. <laughs> Charlie Manson. Quote, Revelation and the White Album, with assistance from Charlie, made it clear there was about to be an uprising of the oppressed in the world, mostly black people, who had been held down for too long. Something called Helter Skelter, an event or events still to be determined, would set off the battle. Black people were going to kill most of the whites and enslave their surviving oppressors. Charlie would lead the family to the bottomless pit, where they would remain in hiding as the world above descended into chaos. Eventually, Charlie and the family would emerge from the bottomless pit and become acknowledged rulers. Charlie, of course, the first among them. So how much acid do you have to give someone over how much time to believe that the Beatles even know who Charles Manson is? I would say a lot of acid and a shorter period of time than you'd expect. <laughs> Charlie assured the family that if any of them were to leave at this point, being white, they would be killed or made into slaves during the coming race war. And so he was giving them a choice, be a slave or be a ruler. Another album was released a couple months later in early 1969, The Beach Boys' 2020. As we discussed, uh, far from ensuring Charlie finally reached the levels of stardom he desperately wanted and thought was owed to him, the album was a flop, critically panned, and worst of all, as Dad mentioned last episode, Dennis Wilson, Dennis Wilson took sole 
songwriting credit and had the gall to change the title and some of the lyrics, which he didn't tell Manson about ahead of time and went directly against promises he had made to Charlie. Oh, it wasn't Mike Love monkeying around with the lyrics this time? Like, uh, hang on to your ego? No, I don't think so. Um, but yeah, he didn't even credit Charlie on the record, which is pretty rough. The renamed ceased to exist. Um, listen, Dennis, we said last week Dennis was kind of scared of the guy. Maybe throw him a, a songwriting credit. Mm-hmm. I don't really understand his motivation there. I don't know why he made that choice. Uh, I, I would assume it's because the one with the songwriting credit is going to get all the all the hot royalties off of Cease to Exist. <laughs> I mean, okay. So it was Cease to Exist. It was renamed Never Learn Not to Love. Um, it was released as the B-side of their second single, Bluebirds Over the Mountain. And um, the thing is, it actu- actually just totally tanked on the charts so there was really no well I, yeah that royalties. was that was my joke I've, I've never heard of bluebird over the mountain yeah charlie wasn't exactly the type to feel shame but he must have known it didn't look good for his reputation among his followers that his one shot at musical glory was so badly received by the general public yeah well it's, it's a weird song in a uh, in a bad time for the beach boys <laughs> what are you gonna do charlie Quote, as it turned out, Charlie was the uncredited composer of a failed song, and in the bottom line world of the recording industry, that was more damning than not having a song recorded at all. Dennis, at this point, was done. A dead end, dead to Charlie. Terry Melcher was now his only remaining hope of musical redemption. In mid-March of 1969, Charlie finally got word that Terry would come to hear him perform some of his songs at the ranch, kind of like a de facto audition. However he was able to contact Melcher, and however he was contacted back, it's still unclear to this day whether Charlie knew for sure that Terry had moved from his home on Cielo Drive. Two family members knew that Terry had rented that place on Cielo, Charlie, who had apparently shown up there for a party before, very much against Terry's wishes, and Tex Watson. There are still conflicting reports as to whether Charlie realized that Terry was permanently in Malibu now. Uh Uh, Jeff Gwynn's Manson states he uh, didn't realize that. Others say that he did, and we'll get into the reasons why there's such a conflict next episode. Mm Mm-hmm. But wherever Terry was based, it didn't matter. He would finally be coming to the ranch to give Charlie his shot. And so Charlie allowed himself to get his hopes, or at least his expectations, up again. And he played his songs, you know, Squirrel Nut Cone and uh, (laughs) uh, Steel Type Empire. Um, Well, before that, the family took a break from preparing for Helter Skelter, and we'll talk about their preparations next episode as well, and busily readied for Melcher's arrival. Charlie bathed again and trimmed his hair and ordered the women to fashion him an entire outfit from deer skins for the performance, a representation of the family's commitment to going back to the land. Charlie well, planned... Is, is, that, is that something they value in the record industry? Well, Charlie does. Charlie planned everything down to the most minute detail, and when the time came for Terry to arrive, the entire family, headed by Charlie, went to the Spawn Ranch gate to greet him. But he never showed. 
Oh no, Terry. And once again, Charlie was humiliated in front of the family, embarrassed that everyone knew now how important this was to him and how unimportant it was to Terry. These poor girls unsure whether to still throw their garlands of roses or whatever he's fucking got them holding. Charlie was Jesus Christ, after all. How could this lowly music producer treat him like dirt? Charlie had to go find Terry and bring him to spawn himself. Now, this could be the plot of a fun you know, edgy, madcap comedy where Charlie kidnaps the record producer and makes him listen to his terrible songs. And then at the end, he lets him go. We all learn something. Mm -hmm. He avoids jail time through a a script quirk. Yep, that's not going to (laughs) happen. It's the end to several vacation movies. (laughs) Now, when Terry had moved from Cielo Drive, his landlord and owner of the home, Rudy Altabelli, let a few random people crash there for short periods of time not wanting to leave the place totally vacant. One of these tenants was, if you could believe it, Dean Morehouse, the father of Ruth Ann Morehouse, who had once threatened to shoot Charlie for absconding with his daughter. Oh, I thought Dean Morehouse was the villain from Revenge of the Nerds. (laughs) And Dean had also been completely cowed by Charlie's rhetoric and ended up tripping with the family on drugs, if you uh, remember that whole weird thing. So Dean had shown up in L.A. looking to join the family, really. Um, But Charlie was kind of like, ew, we don't want someone's dad in our crew. Well, hadn't he pulled a gun on Charlie on the side of the road? Yes. And and Charlie was just like, you don't want to kill me, brother. He's pretty much like, shoot me. And and he was like, what? (laughs) (laughs) And then they got high together. Yes. So, again, there must have been something... About him or the situation, Dean followed them out to L.A. And he wanted to join, but he was an older guy that looked like Santa Claus and just did not fit the vibe. It must just be like, well, this guy, nothing he says makes sense to me, but he seems to have survived this long. So (laughs) He's got to be doing something right. Dennis Wilson actually ended up taking a shine to Dean Morehouse, and Dean ended up working for Dennis and Greg Jacobson in various roles, including as a property caretaker. Dean, stay. (laughs) Dean stayed at Cielo uh, for a few days, but Altabelli was quick to get him out in favor of tenants who could actually afford the $1,200 a month rent. I've got uh, six quarters and two tabs of acid. (laughs) Yeah. That didn't really fly. But yeah, $1,200 a month for a Hollywood mansion in the 60s. Those were the days. Well, I mean, you know, even just inflation, it's got to be at least 12000 right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Eventually, Rudy found the perfect renters, ones who were fine with him living in the guest cottage, who would pay the rent and pay it on time, and who were in show business. The new renters were film director Roman Polanski and his beautiful pregnant actress wife, Sharon Tate. The 60s it couple were about to have a violent altercation with fate in the form of Charlie Manson. And that fate was previewed when Charlie went to Cielo on March 23, 1969, to confront Terry Melcher in person. Uh, And he doesn't live in Cielo anymore. No. On that spring morning, photographer Sharuk Hatami was at 10,050 Cielo Drive to photograph Sharon when he spotted a short man with long hair walking through the yard. 
Annoyed that the strange man was acting like he owned the place, Hatami asked him who he was and what he wanted. I had all place and no place, man. (laughs) The photographer didn't recognize his name nor his face and told Charlie that this is the Polanski residence. However, knowing that Rudy had his own friends, he figured he'd check with the landlord if he knew the guy since he lived on the property anyway. Sharon Tate, hearing voices, stepped onto the porch and asked, Who is it, Hatami? It was then that Sharon would unknowingly come face to face with the man who would be responsible for her death mere months later. Charlie walked down to the cottage where Rudy Altabelli met him, and he began to introduce himself, but Rudy stopped him, saying, I know who you are, Charlie. What do you want? (laughs) According to Altabelli's later account, Charlie asked to see Terry Melcher, and Altabelli said that Terry had moved. Charlie wanted to know where. And perhaps sensing a threat, Rudy lied, because he did know where, and told Charlie he didn't know. He eventually begged off the awkward conversation, telling him that he had to go. He was leaving for Europe in the morning and had to pack. Oh, gotta go. My uh, hair is wet. (laughs) And before Charlie skulked off, Rudy told him that he didn't like his tenants to be disturbed and Charlie shouldn't do it again. So we don't know much of what Sharon thought of Charlie when she saw him for those few fateful moments, not even six feet between them as they both gazed at each other on the Cielo Drive lawn. Did she get a chill, the kind that they say you get when someone walks over your grave? Did she have any idea of the violence this man would soon bring into her life? Did she simply just want this skeezy little guy off her property so she could get back to her photo shoot? Yes. (laughs) Well, no one really knows for sure. But the only thing Sharon ever said about Charlie was the next day to Alta Belli during their shared flight to Rome when she asked him, did that creepy looking guy come back to see you yesterday? So maybe that says enough. Maybe in some way she instinctively knew that she had much to fear from this short, long haired hippie. Well, I think, I mean, you know, she might have been concerned about any random hippie wandering onto her lawn. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. Only this one was going to order her death. Next week, we'll introduce you to the tragic victims of the Manson family, including Sharon Tate herself. And, And it's an important discussion in this case, not only because we always try to make sure our listeners have a grasp of the real people affected by these horrible crimes, but also because this case has become so famous that it's an easy mistake to minimize these people within their own story. But unfortunately, in August of 1969, the story of Charlie Manson and the Manson family would become inextricably intertwined with those of Sharon Tate, Rosemary and Leno LaBianca, Gary Hinman, and up to a dozen more who wouldn't survive their encounter with Helter Skelter. Next episode, which is sure to be a thick one, we'll discuss the circumstances that led to their deaths and finally detail the infamous murder spree that eventually culminated in one of the most explosive trials in American legal history. So at least two more weeks, people. Two more weeks, yeah. (laughs) It's, It's an intense story, and it's, I mean, next episode is the one you're all waiting for, I'm sure. So it's going to be, it's going to be an intense one. Yeah. I think I heard all about this one in an album by a European rock band. I can't remember which one it was. European rock band. Hmm. The Rolling Stones. There were four lads. They were from Liverpool. Hmm. 
the monkeys. Twenty-four hours ago, I found out the person that I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. No news this week. We're getting back from vacation and we're tired and I don't know. There's just no news, okay? We're hip deep in Charlie. <laughs> and we won't torture you with another Charlie Manson Deepika again. So we'll just say we hope you've been enjoying this series or at the very least learning a lot. And we'll see you next time as we finally get into the bloody chaos that was Helter Skelter. Yeah, so well, it's the bad one or the good one, depending on what kind of a freak you are, listener. Well, they got to be a little freaky to listen, right? Yeah, I, th- I think so. That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary and check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash ain'titscary. You can call us and leave a message at our Google Voice number, 203-666-5529. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. We'll be forever grateful. We certainly will. And special thanks to those of you already joining us over there on Patreon. Our top-tier patrons are Nate Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakutis, Ryan Regan, Christy Atchison, Kate Pope, Haley, Aussie Sean Downs, Ryan, Enrique, Derek, and Ira. Thank you all. We love you so very much. You're uh, really an important part of this show. Absolutely. See you next Thursday. Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe. Music by Kyle Ryan. You can find Kyle at his YouTube channel. Music is a verb. Ain't It Scary has been brought to you by Killer Podcasts and is a production of Longboy Media. 3AM, the comedy horror podcast that holds weekly gatherings around the campfire. Let me tell you what you're going to get. You're going to hear stories about demonic possessions, prison stabbings, skinwalkers, glitches in the Matrix, cult leaders, missing 411, Night Marchers, Operation Paperclip, Mesopotamian Devil Worship, and so many monsters it'll give Kanye West a runaway for his money. Pop and meme culture also aren't off topic. A camp where laughs and scares are constantly competing for first place. We're just a group of friends trying to bust each other's balls, find the best stories, and expand the circle in the process. 3AM, the comedy horror podcast, not for the faint or fragile of heart. Let's go. Let's go.